Over the last uh, six weeks, we uh, have been going through a sermon series called The Seven Desires. Now, this sermon series is, uh, is based upon a book uh, by the same title, The Seven Desires, um, by the Lasers to uh, Counselors. And uh, in this book, as they sort of unpack some of the things that they have anecdotally experienced in the last 20-some-odd years of counseling together, uh, what they've basically argued is that we see that each uh, person has uh, one of seven core desires. And so as we uh, took a look at this book and read through it a little bit, we kind of had an an aha moment. And part of that aha moment was going, you know what? The reason that we have these seven desires is not only that God has created us this way, but we're created in his image. And so part of the reason we have these desires is because they're actually part of God's image in us, right? And uh, and not only that, but we talked about the fact that uh, the book highlighted that for those people who have either been wounded in one of these seven areas or unfulfilled in one of these seven areas, that it essentially impacts them throughout the rest of their lives. They seek to be filled up in these areas. And so we talked about the desire to be heard and understood. We talked about the desire to be affirmed for what you do, to be blessed for who you are, to be safe, to be touched, to be chosen. And ultimately, we talked about um, how God meets each of these desires in us, uh, not only through himself and through his son, but also through the fellow uh, believers that God puts into our life today. We're going to be taking a look at this seventh core desire. And these are relational desires. And, and so fundamentally, these aren't just sort of our desires to have food, uh, but, but instead they're really relational desires. So let's take a moment and let's pray, and then we will jump into the seventh of these desires. Father, again, I thank you very much uh, that you have called us into this place. Father, I thank you very much that in your word you do meet these uh, seven core desires in us through your son Jesus, uh, Father, through yourself and even through the believers that you place into our lives. And so, Father, I pray that, that our trust would be in you, in your goodness, and in your provision. Father, I pray that our faith would not be in ourselves, but rather that our faith would be in your son, Jesus. And so, Father, it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So uh, I'm going to tell a story this morning about my best friend from high school. His name's Greg Thompson. I've got a picture of him up here if you can see him. Greg is um, the pastor of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Charlottesville, which is kind of a big church up there. And uh, anyway, he's, he has experienced lots of success in ministry. He's living a great life now. Uh, we actually were friends in high school. Uh, when I was in ninth grade, he was an eighth grader at my church. He started attending the church I, that, uh, that I had been at my whole life. And he quickly found out that I was going to be at Traveler's Rest High School or that I was at Traveler's Rest High School. He was going to be a freshman there. And so just to be really honest with you, he kind of latched on to me. You know, I mean, he's 13 and I was 14 or something. I don't know, or 15. And uh, so we became friends progressively. So when I was in 10th grade and he was in 9th grade, he was working to sort of find his place at Traveler's Rest High School. And, uh, and so, you know, there were any number of things he was interested in and any number of things that he was particularly gifted in. But because I was a soccer player, I tried to talk him into playing soccer. And he was a big guy. He's like six foot four. And so I said, you know what, Greg, you can come out. You can play goalkeeper for us. Even if you've never played, I guarantee you that you will make the team as a goalkeeper. You, can, you might be a backup initially, but you'll do it. You'll make it. And so over the course of the you know, next month or so, we would go out to Furman University and, and he'd stand in the goal and I'd shoot on him and I would kind of teach him how to dive to the right and dive to the left and how to cut down angles and goal and worked with him and all this stuff. And then um, in February of that year, were tryouts for the high school soccer team. Again, he's a freshman. I'm a sophomore. And so Greg comes out. There's essentially two weeks of tryouts. We go through it all. And, you know, he isn't, you know, the best player out there by any means. But, you know, he's not doing it horribly. 
And uh, so we go through the process of tryouts. There are 23 kids trying out for the soccer team at Traveler's Rest High School, which needless to say is not one of the main sports in Traveler's Rest, South Carolina, just in case you were wondering. It's tractor pulling coon hunting. Those are the top two. And so, the, you know, so he went through this two weeks of a tryout period. And uh, the time came for us to find out, you know, who made the team. And the coach said, this is in 1987 or whatever, the coach said, I'm going to be posting the list of everyone who tried out and everyone who made the team on the door of my classroom. And after school, on the whatever day, you go by, and it'll just be, you know, listed right there who made it and who didn't. And so, you know, it was a really kind of a stressful day. And, and so all that day, Greg was worried, and I was slightly nervous or whatever, but, you know, felt a little bit confident. I was like, no, man, we're, we're both good. We're fine. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we made our way over to the coach's uh, classroom door, and from, you know, sort of the hallway as we walked down towards the store, you could see the piece of paper taped onto his door, right? And so we got closer and closer, and we went up, and we looked at the door. And, uh, and on the door, again, you know, were the list of people who had made the team, one through 22. 22 people made the team. 23 people had tried out. At the bottom of number 22, there was a Sharpie line that was written, and then below that Sharpie line was the name of, Greg Thompson, the guy who I tried to get to try out for the soccer team. Now, you're allowed to laugh. He's a buddy of mine. He's way past this now. We didn't think it was funny at the time, especially he didn't think it was funny at the time. But it was this really painful experience, as you might imagine, of not being included, right? Now, granted, this was a long before the days of political correctness and everybody needs to feel good. And I guess the coach just thought, hey, we had 23 people, to 22 spots, too bad. Boom. Life lesson for you. You know? <laughs> But think about the pain of not being included. Think about the pain of being excluded. Some of you have experienced that pain before, whether it was trying to make the band or maybe, you know, sort of being part of the cool kids at school. Who knows what it was, but we know the pain of not being included. Here's a quote from the book, uh, The Seven Desires, particularly on this desire uh, to be included. Here's the quote. The desire to be included is related to the desire to be chosen. This desire, however, is broader. We desire to be included in fellowship with God and with others. We long to belong. This desire is about community. We long to be part of something larger than ourselves, a team, a family, a group. We long to be part of something larger than ourselves. It helps us feel that we're not alone, and it gives us a sense of well-being. This sense of belonging gives us a feeling of needed security. Belonging has all kinds of emotional, physical, and spiritual benefits, right? We read that. And we know intuitively that it's true, but we also read it and know that it's true because we read about it in popular culture, in popular psychology. We know that this desire to be included is important, and there are real benefits from being included. Now, the question is, when people are injured in this way, when they're wounded in this area of being included, when they're excluded, right, or when that need is unfulfilled, that desire is unfulfilled in them, what happens to them? How do they cope? What are the symptoms of people who haven't been included? I've got a list of five of them. Number one, one of the things that happens when we're wounded in this desire of being included is that it drives us to try to earn our way into that group. In other words, to do whatever it takes to be included. Now, some of you are, are familiar with uh, Michael Jordan in here. You're familiar with the this, this story that Michael Jordan told over and over again about how he was cut from his high school basketball team. And I'm pretty sure that's the way he phrased it. Brian Carroll, I'll defer to you. Um, but essentially what I found is I sort of read some other articles on this is that he wasn't technically cut from his high school basketball team. In fact, what happened was his sophomore year, he was a phenomenal player, but he was only five foot 10 at the time. 
And there was a varsity team and a JV team. And the coach of the varsity team needed more height on the varsity. And so actually the story that I heard that I think is factually correct is that it wasn't so much that Jordan got cut as much as that someone else who was a sophomore who was six foot seven was invited to be on the varsity. And so Michael Jordan, uh, instead of being included in the varsity, was placed upon the JV. Now, here's a quote from an article that I read um, about this whole story. And I think it's actually a pretty great quote. He says this, the, the author says this, in those days, it was rare for sophomores to make varsity at his particularly high school. Uh, his coach made one exception in 1978, one designed to remedy his teen's, team's height disadvantage. This is part of the reason Michael Jordan went home and cried in his room after reading the two lists. It wasn't just that his name was missing from the varsity roster. It was also that as he scanned the list, he saw the name of another sophomore, one of his close friends, the six foot seven Leroy Smith. Okay, goes on to say, this author goes on to say, over the next three decades, Jordan would become, and listen to this, a world-class collector of emotional wounds, a champion grudge holder, a magician at converting real and imagined insults into the rocket fuel that made him fly. In other words, part of what being excluded can do to some people, part of what we do to cope with being excluded is we say, I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can to be included by that group. I'm going to do whatever it takes. Some of you in this room have experienced that before, whether it's, I'm going to work hard to, to be one of the cool kids, or I'm going to work hard to be included with the musicians, or I'm going to work hard to be included with the academics. It might actually cause you to work and work and work and do whatever it takes to be included. Now, the second thing that we see uh, is that, that is a coping mechanism or a symptom of people who have been excluded, wounded in this way, uh, is that they seek to raise their reputation while lowering the reputation of other people in the in crowd through gossip or slander or lying, right? I don't have a huge illustration for this. Let me just tell you that I was a junior high youth pastor, okay? Suffice it to say, that's all I need to say. Okay, I'll say more. If, if you were ever a junior high girl, you know exactly what I'm talking about, right? With boys, it's different. Boys are dealing with different things. But one of the things that happens in the lives, especially of junior high girls, this is anecdotal by me, is that there's a fierce competition for place, and they will do whatever it takes, hair pulling, gossip, lying, slander, whatever it takes to sort of be in that group. They'll do anything to raise their reputation, even if it means uh, lowering the reputation of others in ways that we would say are sinful. What else do these people do who've been wounded in this, this desire to be included? A lot of times what people do is they change who they are in order to fit in. They'll go, well, I'll just, I'll just change. I'll just be whoever I need to be to be included. I'll be whoever I need to be in order that that group will let me in. Quick story. When I was at Covenant College, there was a guy who was a year or two older than me. I'll just say his name was Rob. Rob was actually from Maryland, all right? So, so he said donkey instead of donkey, right? And so if you're from that area, you kind of know some of the different world. But he had a very thick sort of, you know, Maryland, northeastern accent. Well, he, he went to seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, ended up being a pastor down in sort of in that area somewhere. And I remember probably five or six years uh, after graduating from Covenant College, seeing him at General Assembly. And I was like, hey, Rob, how you doing, man? I went up and talked to him. And one of the, it was one of the most bizarre experiences of my life. All of a sudden, Rob, who was from Maryland, had this amazing Mississippi accent, right, after six years. And instead of saying bird, he said bird. And it was the soft and gentle. It sounded like he was from Oxford, Mississippi. And it was interesting as I was talking to him, I thought, wow, that's an interesting transformation, you know? And my guess is, I didn't call him up and ask him if I could use this illustration. I probably should have anyway. But my guess is, is that part of what he was doing, whether it was knowingly or unknowingly, was he was doing whatever it took 
probably to fit in. You could think of a thousand uh, different uh, examples of people changing who they are to fit in. Another thing that people do to cope, another symptom of these people who've been wounded, who haven't been included, but instead have been excluded, is some of these people, just, they just give up. They just quit. And, and part of what they do when they quit is they quit and they just look down on the other groups. They just look down and hate those other groups, right? Every 80s movie that you've ever seen, Pretty in Pink, The Breakfast Club, 16 Candles, it's the theme of almost every single one of those groups, right, of, of movies, right? Just think back, go home and watch one tonight, and you're like, oh yeah, there it is, right? Quit, quit trying to get in that group and just stand on the outside and judge. Finally, what do people do who've been wounded in this desire to be included? Part of what happens, and I think this is probably the saddest of all of them, is that people who weren't included, whether it was by their family, right, or, or by a sports team, or by a cool group of kids at school, or maybe worse yet, in a youth group or in church, is part of what these people do is they just end up living life feeling unworthy, right? They just think, I'm not, I'm not worth anything, or, or I must not be very lovable or particularly lovable, or surely I would have been included. Somebody would have welcomed me in, or they have intense feelings of shame that something must be wrong with me, right? And again, some of you in this room this morning, you, you know this pain. You know this pain of being excluded. You know this pain of being, not being included by the very people that, that maybe were the ones that were supposed to love you, your parents, you know, maybe your teachers. You know the hurt that comes from this. Now, let me call time out really quickly here and say this, that if you in this room, if you're one of these people who, who've been wounded deeply and you don't feel like you've been, being, been included, and you demonstrate some of these traits, you need to know that each of these symptoms or each of these coping mechanisms, actually, they actually drive away the very people that you want to be included by. Okay, you need to hear that. And again, my, on my list of the seven desires, I've got some that are really sort of resonate with me. And I do some things from these lists that I know drive people away. And people who weren't included, when you do some of these things, you need to understand that you're pushing away or you're pushing yourself away from the very people you long to be included by. Now, two things related to this. One, let me give you a little bit of hope and say that healing is available, right? That, that God can meet this desire in you, that, that, that good, healthy relationships can meet this desire in you, that healing is available, but there's also probably a little bit of repentance that needs to be done on your part as well. If you recognize that this is a piece of your brokenness, if you recognize that you've developed coping mechanisms in order to try to, to sort of work with this or try to overcome this, you need to understand that some of the things that you've been employing, you probably need to repent over in order to move on to a healing place. Next, let me say this. If you know someone that demonstrates these coping mechanisms or symptoms, if you see somebody and know somebody who, and you go, oh, that's so-and-so, then what I would ask you to do is I would ask you to be understanding and to be empathetic with them, and to understand that this is probably a result of a wound in their life. It's probably a result of this, this desire to be included, which went unmet probably in their childhood. And then so instead of standing back and judging them, rather that you would have some empathy for who they are and for what they struggle with. Now, one of the things I've been saying over and over again is, is my goal isn't simply to talk about pop psychology as much as I find that enjoyable. But my goal is to say, to what degree does God meet these seven core relational desires in us? Does the Bible affirm this? And let me, let me say this, that I think especially in this desire to be included, I think that, that it's all over scripture. It's all over the place. It's in, in the Old Testament where God made provision for those people who weren't Jews to come into the covenant family. 
It's not only in the Old Testament, but, but it comes out in themes in the New Testament, like adoption, right? Being adopted into God's family, included in God's family. It, it comes into play in the Lord's Supper and, and even in baptism, ideas and concepts that talk about inclusion. It, it comes into play in parables that Jesus talks about, like the parable of the wedding banquet and the parable of the sheep and the goats. It's all over scripture, right? Instead of picking and choosing and kind of finding all these different themes to talk about instead, I thought what I would do is, is read one little story, one little narrative that, that actually gets to this idea to some degree of how God meets this desire in us to be included. And it's the story of Matthew the tax collector. It's found in Matthew chapter 9. It's found in the other Gospels as well. But, but we'll read these verses 9 through 13 very quickly. And uh, just follow along with me, with me if you will. As Jesus went on from there, we'll, we'll talk about where there was in a minute. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Or another way of saying it would be, I've not come to include the righteous, but I've come to include the sinners. What do we see in this little narrative? Let me paint the picture first of all. The picture is this. Um, the area where Matthew was sitting at his tax collector's booth was a, an area that was just on the, the very northernmost part of the Sea of Galilee, right? And uh, this was in an area called the Decapolis, or, or the Ten Cities. And it was essentially, there was a major port there that came off of the Sea of Galilee where there was lots of commerce done. And not only that, but there was a road that went around the entire Sea of Galilee and then went all the way sort of down the Jordan River, down towards Jericho and towards Jerusalem. And so this was actually a major place where there would have been a lot of business going on. There would have been a lot of commerce going on. There would have been a lot of traffic going through here. And so this was a high traffic taxation point, okay? And so Matthew is at a place where he's going to be, you know, constantly in the midst of all sorts of business. That's number one. The second thing we need to see chronologically is that as Matthew is sitting there at this tax collector's booth on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee, that, uh, this, that Jesus, as he's making his way down the road towards the tax collector's booth, Jesus was already famous, right? He was already well-known. And so you can just imagine that as Matthew's sitting there at his tax collector's booth, he hears a hubbub, right, down the street, and he sees a crowd of people making their way towards him. And it's probably Jesus surrounded not only by the 12 disciples, but by other people who wanted to be in on what he was doing and, and sort of wanted to be near this famous, you know, sort of rock star rabbi at the time. And Jesus had already given the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. He'd already calmed the storm. He'd already rescued and restored two demon-possessed men. He'd already healed Peter's mother-in-law. He'd already called at least four of the disciples. And so Jesus was famous. He was well-known. I mean, people wanted to be around him. And so as he made his way towards this tax collector's booth, it's just bizarre to think that Matthew's sitting there watching. And if anything, maybe he's feeling a little bit of curiosity about this guy. Or maybe worse yet, maybe he's feeling a little bit sheepish. We'll get to that in a minute. Because part of Matthew's story is that he was a tax collector and he was also a Jew. So let me tell you very quickly a little bit about tax collectors. First of all, I want you to just imagine the sheriff of Nottingham from Robin Hood, the Disney version. Do we have a picture of him? I think maybe somewhere in here. Yeah, remember, remember the sheriff of Nottingham? See, he's getting coins out of someone's cast, okay? This is the closest picture I can give you of somebody who would have been a tax collector uh, in the time of Jesus. First of all, they were independent contractors. 
And so what these, these tax collectors would do is they would go to the Roman government and they would bid on certain areas. And so Matthew would have gone to the Roman government, the officials in that area, and he, sa- he would say, I want the area of the Decapolis on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And he would have known that it was a high traffic area. He would have known that there was lots of commerce going on. He would have known there were lots of people going by. He would have known that he had the chance to make lots of money there. And he bid for it. And essentially the way that the bid worked is you would go to the Roman government and you'd say, hey, you know, I think I can get $40,000 worth of taxation from this area. And any profit above and beyond that was what he made. And so that's why tax collectors were so hated is because they would do whatever it took to try to get their profits above and beyond whatever their bid was. And so they used heavy handedness. They used threats. They used savvy. They used, you know, callousness. They were kind of jerky guys. And so here, this gives you an image of who Matthew is. He bid for this really sort of high traffic, high taxation point. And he knew he was going to have to do whatever it took to get money from these people. So he was probably kind of a a savvy business guy. He was probably kind of a, I don't care what you think about me kind of guy. And in the midst of this, Jesus walks over towards his tax collector booth. Let me tell you a little bit more about uh, Matthew. Not only was he a tax collector, but he was also a Jew, right? And so it would have been one thing if he was uh, a tax collector. The Jews hated tax collectors, right? In fact, the rabbis taught that it was actually okay to lie to a tax collector. In other words, like, usually don't lie, but if it's a tax collector, do whatever you want. That's kind of what they said, right? And worse yet, here's Matthew. He's a Jew, and so he's a traitor. The Romans were, in the Jewish minds, the Romans were an occupying force. And so here's Matthew, a Jew, working with the occupying force and getting rich off of his own you know, fellow people. And so they hated him. In fact, they hated Jewish uh, tax collectors so much that they were excluded from the synagogue. They were excluded from their families. They were excluded from being able to testify in a court of law. They were utterly and completely outcast. They were as bad as, uh, as prostitutes. They were as bad as the worst of the worst. People hated them because they were ultimately uh, traitors to their own people. Now, what do we do with all of this? What do we do with this story? Part of what we do with this story is we take a look who was at who was excluded and who was included. Before I get into this, let me, let me say this really quickly. Exclusion, in the way that most of us have experienced it over the years, is usually because we didn't have something, right? You know, maybe you were excluded because you didn't have enough money, right? You didn't have enough money to have IZOD shirts or polo shirts, and so you got the fake polo shirt that had three legs instead of four, right? You know, some of us were excluded because we didn't have the athleticism required to be on the football team or the baseball team or the tennis team. Some of us were excluded because we didn't have the musical chops. Some of us were excluded because we didn't have whatever it took academically in order to be included into that intellectual group. But we all know that usually it was an absence of some real thing that we actually really didn't have. Now, what's interesting about who's excluded in this story is the very people that are excluded are the people that have everything right? They're the people that have it all. They've got the religious stuff. They've got the pedigree. They've got the ethnic background. They've got all this stuff. The people who were excluded from the family of God were the Jews, the religious Jews, particularly. They were the Pharisees. And what's interesting is these people thought that they had everything that was required in order to be included. And one of those things that they thought was required to be included was that they had a good moral record, right? They kept the law well. They had a high view of scripture And essentially what Jesus does is he comes along and he tells them that they're excluded precisely 
because of the, their righteousness. They're excluded precisely because of the things that they think they can actually come and offer God in order that he will accept them. Jesus, again, tells them it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick. I haven't come to call the righteous, but instead I've come to call some other people, right? And in, in, in essence, what Jesus is saying is, he's saying, as long as you think you're healthy, as long as you think you're fine, as long as you think you're righteous, as long as you think you've got enough stuff to offer my father, then you're never going to come to me, right? The barrier between them and God wasn't their sin, but rather the barrier between them and God was their goodness. It was their righteousness. That was the thing that stood between them and being included in the family of God. And let me call time out here really quickly and say that some of you in this room have fallen into that category in your past. Some of you in this room fall into that category right now. I absolutely did, right? I was a very good competitor. I was great at not doing all the stuff you weren't supposed to do. And I was great at doing all the stuff you were supposed to do when I was in high school and in college. And so I constantly was defining myself in God's eyes, or I was believing that I was included with God because, hey, I don't do this. I don't do that. And on top of it, I do all these other things And I got to Covenant Seminary, by the way, after going to Covenant College for four years. And uh, that's not meant to be a criticism of Covenant College, but rather simply God's work in my heart and in my mind. And I got to Covenant Seminary, and for the first time I heard that it wasn't about what I didn't do, and it wasn't about what I did do, but rather it was about what Christ had done for me. And all of a sudden, all the air came out of my sails. Like my hot air balloon of being really competitive just sunk to the ground and just sort of laid there still because the thing that I was good at was being better than other people. And what Jesus is saying here to those men and those people who are trusting in their moral righteousness and their religiosity is he was saying, sorry, I'm not here for you. As long as you think you've got something to offer, then you can never have what you truly need. Now look who is included. As if it weren't offensive enough that the religious people were excluded, what's even more offensive is, is who gets included, right? It's, it's the prostitutes. It's the tax collectors. It's the Roman centurions and Roman officers. It's the Samaritans. It's all these people who are sinners. Again, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous or include the righteous, but instead sinners, right? It's the broken people. The people who get included are the people who come and go, I don't have anything to offer you except a bunch of junk, except a bunch of badness, except a bunch of sin. And so the question is for those of us in this room this morning, is that good news or bad news, right? And the answer is it kind of depends on which of these two groups you're in. But I think the answer is that it's good news because Jesus in his 12 disciples included a political revolutionary, right? And not only did he include a political revolutionary, but he included a skeptic, right? I mean, this is great. I love the fact that Jesus goes, I'll take Thomas, right? And not only does he include this uh, skeptic in Thomas, but he, he recruits a conservative Jew in Nathaniel, and now a tax collector. And so if Jesus could include all of these people, then maybe there's room for you and for me, as long as we're willing to repent not only of our sin, but willing to repent of our goodness, willing to repent of our righteousness. Because it's very clear that Matthew, of all people, wasn't included because of his goodness, or because of his righteousness, the only reason he was included was because of the grace of Jesus, right? The only reason he was included was because of the mercy of God. Today in the Lord's Supper, that's exactly what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the fact that the only people who get to to partake of the Lord's Supper, of this meal, 
are those people who have repented of both of those things, not only their sins, but also their goodness. And they come to the Lord's table saying, I've got nothing to offer you, God, except what Jesus has done on my behalf. Now, let me stop here one second and say this. I typically call this meal the Lord's Supper. Different people call it different things. One of the things that it's frequently referred to is, is communion. And so one of the things that we receive in communion is this idea that we now have the right to be included with God or to commune with God because of what his son Jesus did. Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf, right? And he, he even died in our place and rose again from the dead. And so we can have communion with God. We can be included with God because of what his son has done. So those of you who have struggled with feeling excluded, this is a time this morning where you get to hear the message in the Lord's Supper of God saying, I want to include you. I want to be with you. I'll do whatever it takes in order to include you with me, even the death of my own son. And so part of what I want to encourage you today is I want to remind you that you are included with God precisely because he said, I want to be with you so much that I'll send my only son to die on the cross for you. It's part of the idea of communion. The other aspect of communion that we see in this meal, though, is that we're also in communion with one another. Does that make sense? You you know, there are people in this room, and there are people in every Sunday in this room that come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, but you have communion with one another because of what you have in common in Christ Jesus. There are people in this room who come from different political takes. I hate to tell you this, conservatives, but there are people in here who are liberal. And I hate to tell you this liberal, but there are people in here who are conservative, right? There are Democrats and Republicans in this room. What you have in common is Christ Jesus, right? There are people in this room who are the popular kids in high school, and there are people in this room that weren't the popular kids in high school. But what you do have in common is basically you have Jesus saying, I'm going to create the ultimate melting pot in the church, and I want your union and your communion to be because you all trust in me, in Jesus, as your Savior. And so before we take the Lord's Supper today, let me ask you to simply sit back and reflect on the idea that in this meal, the Lord's Supper, you have communion with God and you have communion with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is a gift that came at great expense. The only people that aren't welcome to this table today are people who still feel that they have something to offer God. But for those of you who trust in Christ alone for your salvation, this bread and this wine, this communion with God and this communion with the saints is absolutely for you. Now, I'm going to read the words of institution in a moment. What I'm going to ask you to do is to go to the various stations. On my right, your left is a table with bread and wine. Uh, On my left is a table with bread and grape juice. And I'm going to simply ask you to think about and to reflect upon this idea and this is nothing more than the gospel. It's, it's the message that God's not angry with you anymore if you have trusted in his son Jesus alone. It's the message that you are not excluded from God anymore if you trust in Jesus alone. This is a picture of the gospel for you. Let me take one moment and read the words of institution. Let me ask you to sit there and to just simply take some time and think about what that means um, for you as you take the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
to yourself, to one another, to a watching world until he comes. Let's take one moment and pray. Father, I thank you very much for this message that we have been included with you and included with the covenant community, not because of our goodness. In fact, we are included in this uh, relationship with you and with your son Jesus and with one another uh, because we have confessed and admitted that we have nothing to offer you, Father, that our righteous deeds or those deeds we think are righteous aren't good enough. And, And Father, for those of us who think that we could never be included by you because of our badness that you come and you say, well, those aren't enough to keep you away from me either. And so, Father, let us trust in your son Jesus and his perfect life and death and resurrection. And, Father, as we, as we take this bread and eat it, and as we take this wine and we drink it, that we would uh, be convinced not only in our heads, but all the way down deep into our hearts that we've been included with you uh, precisely because of your son Jesus' perfect life and death and resurrection, his sacrifice on our behalf. Father, we pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.